Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called Resilient Faith, we'll explore what it means to have a resilient faith in the middle of a digital age. Each week, we'll explore what it means to have faith in a world with strange new customs, habits, and gods. So let's turn now to part one of our series, Faith in an Unknown God. Earlier this week, some of you saw this, I put out a a message uh, on Facebook and on Instagram about screen time. Anybody see that? Anybody not want to respond because you're afraid to put your screen time out there? Yeah, some of you did. Well, we had, so I, I've got, I've, I promised that I would get a pair of, um, of blue screen glasses, because if you're spending this much time on it, you obviously need it. And our winner was Christy Downey. I know Christy is joining us virtually this morning. She's there. So Christy, one of these pairs are yours. But for those who are gathered here, one of these pairs is for somebody in here too. I'm not letting you hide behind the screen this morning. So here's what you want to do. I'm now Android people. Um, first of all, I hope you get saved. Second, um, I think I discovered uh, how you can do this. Uh, I, I Googled it, right? You can just Google things if you're an Android user. If you're an iPhone user, I'll tell you how you can do this. I want you to find your screen time in just a minute. Seriously, get your phones out. Get ready to, to find this. Android users, and I'm looking over here because I know both of these hooligans, even though they worship, are also Android users. So go to settings, digital well-being, and parental controls. You see how important this is for parental controls, right? Menu, manage your data, and then toggle on daily device usage. That may be complete garbage, but that's what Google says, so I'm going to stick with that. You guys keep working on that if you need me to follow you back. If you are an iPhone user here or at home, go to your settings, and it says just a little ways down, in fact, it's on that opening screen, screen time. It's got a uh, hourglass thing. Just click on screen time. Now, what you're going to see automatically is your daily usage screen time. You don't want that. You want to see all your activity for, for the week. So click on your, all your activity, go to the week, and then just t- kick back. So right now I'm on my week. Let's see. Last week, here's what you have to beat. Last week, my screen time average for the week was three hours and 47 minutes. Three hours and 47 minutes. Do we have any winners over that? Any, anybody? Okay, we got one in here. That's, I see a few of you have not even taken your phones out. I know what's happening. You use those phones. You just don't want to do it. You just don't want to admit what's going on. All right, do you have a little more than that? <laughs> okay. All right, we got at least two faithful admitters that it's more than 347. Where, where are we at? Let's, you want to, are you, are you, 532. We got to, can you beat that? You're always on the phone. You got more than all right. <laughs> all right, Joyce. Wait a minute. Oh, we have one over here. Oh, I see the shame just settling. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I'm not judging for what you're doing. I'm fine. What is your usage? Six hours and what? Five. All right. These. Okay. So you want black or do you want clear? You you get one of these. Which one would you like? Clear? Okay, I'm going to lay those right there for you. Christy, you get black whether you wanted it or not. You didn't answer my text earlier, so that's what you end up with. Now, here's really important. Everybody else can keep their numbers to themselves. I said this online. Let me say this very clearly right here. There is no shame in your game. No shame here. We're not going to create some sort of shaming. But what's interesting 
Some of you either didn't pick up your phones because you, you didn't want to look at it and recognize how much you're spending time on this, or if you did see it, you're like, I am not saying that out loud, and so your family members have to prompt you in order to say it out loud. Either is fine, but, but here is why shame comes. Sociologists, social psychologists tell us something very interesting about shame. They tell us that shame creeps up, and if you had that experience of shame, either you wanted to remain silent about this or something like that, Shame creeps into our lives in those moments where we are not upholding social hierarchies. So there, there are, another way of saying this, there are certain things that we do in the world and certain ways that we do things in the world. And anytime we violate the status quo of how things should be ordered in our lives, particularly in this case, our time, we start to feel shame about it. And what's interesting about the world that we live in right now, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm kind of compelled to say this, is this is exactly where we are with our screens. The truth is, and until Apple came out with this feature on my phone, I had no idea how much time I was actually spending just in front of this screen, right? We're not, we're not combining all the other screens that we might be in front of, but just this screen right here, I had no idea. But then I come in, in contact with this cold, hard truth that for me becomes hard to deal with because I'm upsetting the balance of how I should be using my time. I've disrupted the social hierarchy of how things were working. And when we violate that, we feel shame in doing it. And here's, here's what I want to suggest to us. Whenever our social habits change faster than our social norms, we start to feel shame in life. We start to feel that, that shame kind of rise up inside of us. And, and, you know, by that I mean you could take your phone, you could take your tablets, you could take whatever electronic device is, whatever is a normal, necessary part of our reality. And when we start to use that habitually, more than what society tells us we should use it, we start to feel a little shame. And the problem with that for many of us is even though we're living in this new world where our habits have changed and we're acting in this world, and because of COVID, of course, we're in front of our screens more and more and more, our norms have not yet shifted. They take a little bit longer to change. Our habits and our norms are not aligned. So what society says we should do and what we're actually doing haven't come into sync yet. And when our actions and norms are out of sync, that's where shame comes. And it's in this in-between space that for the next few weeks I want to speak. Because I think we are absolutely living in this space. And I think we don't need to withdraw from the tension. We need to learn a better way to navigate the tension. We need to learn how to live in this world because this, in fact, is the world that we're living in. Even though it may feel foreign to us, it may feel new to us, it may feel strange to us. It may be comfortable because some of you are sitting in your pajamas, not in church here, but some of you are actually in your pajamas right now. It's a weird world that we're living in, but we need to learn how to navigate it and figure it out. And one of the helpful things that I find in Scripture is actually the image that was used in this video over and over again. All throughout Scripture, there are stories of the people of God who engage in strange new worlds. And whenever they get put into these new worlds, the question that naturally arises is, well, how do I find faith here? Because I have a certain set of beliefs, and those beliefs have been connected with practices, but now those practices are no longer around me. And so I have to find new ways of engaging with God. And the image that's used over and over and over again is exile. When the people of God are exiled. Now, the greatest example of this occurred in 586 BCE. It's a historic event where the Babylonians came in, they took all of the people of Israel captive, they drug them out of their home and took them to a foreign land. We call that the Great Exile. 
It's this image, uh, this historic event that becomes an image and an archetype for all of our lives. It is the major exile event. And in that land, here's the interesting part, the Israelites did not have the temple. They did not have the priests that they could go to. The only thing that was around them were foreign gods and foreign temples and foreign customs and foreign habits. And in this new land, they had to figure out, well, how are we going to find faith? And what's interesting about this engagement, and I won't go into it today, but when they were in Babylonian exile, do you realize that's actually the place where the synagogues were created? Now, we've all in this room heard of synagogues, right? Very few of us understand Jewish practice in terms of the temple, but we all know that Jews go to synagogue on Sabbath day. It started in a place of exile. That ancient practice started when people were in a strange world, and in that strange world that was unknown, they had to find new ways of practicing their faith. And of course, this is important for the Jews, but it's equally as important to Christians. It gets passed on and on, that image over and over. Some of you heard me a couple weeks ago. I read this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And in it, Peter opens the letter and he says, To God's elect, comma, exiles. To the exiles. He describes them and he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, to once again describe the Christians as exiles. He says, We as a people of God are strangers wandering through this land. And in whatever season of life we're in, we're in exile. And so Peter understands this, and Paul, even though he never calls out anyone by that name, he doesn't use that name, Paul himself has lived as an exile in the world. He knows what it means to be in exile and to experience that feeling of exile. And this morning, I want to walk you through the end of Acts chapter 17. It's a passage that I read earlier, but if you've got your Bibles or your phones, you can put a, little more, a few more minutes on your phone time. Just pick up that phone, open the screen, go to your Bible app real quick. And you're going to go to Acts chapter 17. Now let me back it up just a little bit to give you some clarity about what's happening, happening in Acts 16 and 17. Paul went on a total of four missionary journeys, but in this context right here, this is his second. It's the second time that he makes a tour, basically, of southern Europe and the Mediterranean basin. And in this particular occasion, Paul sets out. He goes all the way north in Asia Minor, that's where Turkey is in those areas today, and he thinks he's going to turn east. Paul wants to go to a land that he's never been to before. Remember, it's his second missionary journey. So he's already taken one trip, and he's gone over to Greece, and he's been over in that area. This is his second. He gets to the top, to this place called Troas, and as he's in Troas, he has this vision from God. In his mind, he says, I'm going east. I'm going to go to the Byzantine Empire. I'm going to go to Syria. There's a lot more Christians there already. I'll find some connections there. I'm going to expand the gospel there. And in the middle of the night, God gives him a vision. As he's sleeping in Troas, and it's the vision of a Macedonian man, a man from Greece. And in that vision, the man says, come our way. Right? Basically, he's saying, we need you. We need you, Paul, to get over this way. And so Paul wakes up the next morning, and he could have made his way east, but instead he makes his way west. He crosses the Aegean Sea, and as he goes across the Aegean Sea, he immediately enters in this town called Neapolis, and then from Neapolis, he goes on to Philippi. These are both in chapter 16. He gets arrested there with Silas. Some of you remember the story of Paul and Silas in prison. This is where he gets arrested. And he spends this time, this night, in prison before being broken out. Well, he gets out of prison, and he keeps going because he knows that his missionary journey is telling him to go west. And this is where we pick up in chapter 17. If you'll notice in your Bibles in chapter 17, usually it's broken down into three sections, okay? And so in chapter 17, we see a section on Thessalonica, 
He also wrote letters to them, First and Second Thessalonians. We see a section on Berea. Did not write a letter to them. Apparently, he didn't think very highly of them. I don't know. Not sure why he didn't do that. He went to Berea, and then finally he went to Athens. But before I get to Athens, let's just look at what happens in the, the verses that precede in, in Thessalonica and in Berea. Paul does something that I think is very common to us when we get in foreign lands. When Paul entered these foreign lands, he immediately entered the city and settled into an old habit. All right? So in verse, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 17, look at what happens in Thessalonica. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, blah, 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 whatever that word is, right? And then he had went on to Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a what? Jewish synagogue. Now, he went into a foreign land, but he found a Jewish synagogue. He found something that would support his old habits when he went into this land. And then he goes on. He teaches in that synagogue. He moves on throughout that synagogue. Look at Berea. What happens in verse, uh, uh, verse 10? As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, he went to where? Jewish synagogue. Again, he's finding himself in a strange and foreign new land, and he settles into an old habit. And if this were the end of the story, then you and I might walk away from this journey, assuming that any time we enter into strange places in life, we are to pull back in to the, strength, to the old habits that we held on to. But this isn't where the story ends. Paul's journey gets stranger and stranger as he proceeds on, and something happens when he enters Athens that's different than the other two. You see, at the beginning of both of these stories, Paul goes into the city, he finds some believers there, he locates himself in the synagogue. But look at what happens in verse 16. When he enters Athens, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was what? Greatly distressed. Why? Because it was full of idols. He had entered a foreign land in which he was completely surrounded by strange gods, strange habits, strange customs. And in this verse here, there is no mention of any synagogue. Now, there is a synagogue, and in fact, as we go on into verse 17, we see it. It says in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, but he added something to his endeavor. This time he didn't stay in the synagogue. It says he, he ministered or he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. You see, Paul does something very interesting here. He starts in this journey with a foundational place of faith, a, play, a, faith, a place of faith that's comfortable for him, a place that's reasonable for him, but he quickly steps outside of that area. He moves into another area as he enters this strange new city. And in the next few verses as we read through it, and I'm going to skip over some of them because it's just such a lengthy passage, but in the next few verses we see that Paul decides to teach and to debate outside of the synagogue. In fact, the bulk of this text is not what Paul says inside the synagogue, it's what Paul says outside of the synagogue. And at first, this, this seems a little bit strange, right? Paul is trying to teach unbelievers about the way, and so he goes out to them instead of inviting them into the synagogue. But when Paul starts to speak in verse 22, we start to see how his attempt, his, his, his new strategy, so to speak, changes everything. In fact, we'll see this, this take place at the beginning of verse 22, which I'll, I'll read to you. In this passage right here, Paul picks up two, two tools. He picks up an idol, and he picks up a poet. And I want you to listen for both of these, because in every other place where Paul has made arguments, he's always, he's always tried to lean into the Jewish history. He says, well, King David did this. And he says that Jesus came through the line of David, and he pulls from Hebrew scripture, but he doesn't do that here. 
He changes his entire approach when he enters this city. As he says in verse 22, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. He honors exactly where they are in this new world. It may be a different religion from what he's grown up with, but I understand that you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So he's going to go to this idol. He's going to stand in front of the idol, and from here on out, he's going to talk in reference to this idol. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you're worshiping, this God, this unknown God. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is what I want to talk to you about for just a minute, Paul says. This idol right here that you have set up to an unknown God. He says, the God who made, every, uh, made the world and everything that it is in it, that is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that one does not live in any temple that's been built by human hands. And you can imagine Paul pointing around to all the temples that are in Athens at that point. This God's not living in any of these buildings that you've created around here. He's not served by the human hands, by the priest that's walking up the road right there, getting ready to go into the temple as if he needed anything. Rather, this God, instead of being served by you and mandating that you serve, is the one who serves you. He says, rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, referring back to Adam, that they should inhabit the whole world. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps they would reach out to him and they would find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he says this line right here. In verse 28, he says, For in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Now, this wasn't original to Paul. In fact, this was the poet. This is the poet Aratus. And this poet was writing this poem in relationship to Zeus. And Paul, in this moment, stands in front of an idol, and he says, let me give you clarity about the idol that's here, and then let me give you clarity about what your poet was really talking about. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, continuing with the poem, we ourselves are his offspring. And he says, if your poet knew this wisdom, then your poet should also know this, that this God is not served by human hands, that this God is the one who invites you as his offspring to spread his life to other people. And it's in this moment right here that several in the Areopagus, the marketplace, the farmer's market. It's right there that they started to believe in Jesus. In fact, at the very end of this passage, you can go back and look at it, a few are named, one of them being Dionysius, the Areopagite. And Dionysius goes on to become historically known as a bishop in the church and wrote tons of books and stuff like that. But because of Paul's intention right here to meet people in this strange new world and to present a gospel to them that takes some of the tools that are already present he's able to transform an entire city. And it all started when Paul exhibited what I'm going to call throughout this series a resilient faith. Now, what is a resilient faith? Notice I didn't say it's a strong or unshakable faith. That's not what it is. That's not, we don't see that in Paul. I didn't say that it was a compromising faith as if he compromised his faith when he went into that. That's not what we see at all when Paul goes in. Paul displays a resilient faith. He, hate, he had a faith that could withstand any cultural shift. And the reason that it could withstand the cultural shift is it did two things. It went deep, and he leaned in. He went deep. He was well-founded, well-rooted in what his, what his uh, religion was, and he leaned into the culture that was right there. 
And Paul's trips, you know, Paul's trips to Athens, we're, we're like Paul's trips to Athens, rather, we are moving in our culture at a breakneck speed to a brand new world. This past year, year and a half, has forced us forward into this new world. It's changed our habits forever. It's changed the way that we engage the world, the way that we learn in the world, right? The very fact that before service, I could go to Justin and Corny and be like, hey, what does your phone tell you about screen time? And they're like, I, I don't know, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. And then I can go to my screen, and I can get an answer, whether it's true or not, I don't know. Just, just flow with the thing. I can get an answer to their problems, right? I have knowledge right here that they didn't have, and so it's changed the way that we move and operate in the world. And the question for us as people of faith is how will we continue to operate in this environment? How will we continue to have our faith in this? And what does resilience look like for us? If resilience is marked, resilient faith is marked by going deep and also leaning in or becoming flexible with the culture, then what is that going to look like? And over the next few weeks, here's what I'm going to walk you through. There are five practices that are found in this book. If, if you can't see this book on the screen or, or not, this is called Faith for Exiles. It's a book that was produced. It's, it's really not that engaging. It's, it's full of data and all those kinds of things. But it's a book that has five practices that's based off of 10 years of studying 18 to 29-year-olds. And at the end of that 10 years of studying 18 to 29-year-olds, they locked down on those 18 to 29-year-olds whose faith was resilient. And they have specific details about how that is, is figured out, and I'll go over those details in a future week. But they looked at these, these 18 to 29-year-olds, and there was only about 10% of them who had a resilient faith. As they looked at them, they identified five different practices that are present in all of their lives. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to walk through these practices with us. Because these are the same practices. It doesn't matter if you're an 18 to 29-year-old or a 79 to 99-year-old, right? These are the same practices that we need in our lives. And here's what they are. I'm just going to go over them real quickly. We're not going to get into any of them today. But resilient disciples experience an intimate relationship with Jesus. Resilient disciples develop muscles of cultural discernment. Resilient disciples forge meaningful intergenerational relationships in the community of faith. Resilient disciples train for vocational discipleship. And resilient disciples engage in countercultural mission. Now, the Barna Group, led by David Kinnaman, they did a great job of mapping this out, and I think we actually have the map for you so you can kind of see the percentages and the way this all gets shaped up. But when you think about resilient disciples who form an intimate relationship with God, these are people, just frankly, who love Jesus. They've fallen in love with Jesus. They have a deep and intimate relationship with Jesus, and they find joy and satisfaction in that relationship with Jesus because Jesus becomes relevant to their life. Jesus becomes a regular part of their life, and worship is not grounded in what we do in this space or in this hour where we gather together, but for them, when they have an intimacy with Jesus, worship is about a lifestyle. It's about a way in which you carry your life towards Christ. It's an orientation and living. And not only is it about intimacy with, with our living, but it's also resilient disciples are able to develop these, cultural mu or these muscles for cultural discernment. In other words, they can see the way that they can live their life out in everyday faith. They have figured out that in everything they do, there is an element of their faith that is present right there. They know how to live faithfully in the secular world because they carry their faith in every sector of their life. Stri scripture becomes applicable, whether they're in church or outside of church. 
Resilient disciples understand cultural discernment, and they also forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. They developed a place, and they find a place of belonging within the community of faith. But what's really interesting about this group is that they've also developed relationships in the community of faith across generational lines. They figured out either their parents have introduced them to other members of the community of faith and have forged those relationships intentionally or maybe unintentionally, but each of these resilient disciples would express that they had relationships with people other than their family who were pouring into their lives. Because of that, they could continue on. Resilient disciples find those meaningful intergenerational relationships. Meaningful disciples focus on that vocational discipleship, which means that they find a sense of purpose in everything they do in life. Whatever they're going to do in life, they're going to find purpose there, that God has called them into that space. And finally, resilient disciples engage in countercultural mission. And this is perhaps one of the most daunting that lies before us. Because in this context right here, the young people who were studying in this survey have a faith that lasted because it was a faith that could be carried into their actions, not not just into their reception. They were able to act on their faith in public. They were able to act on their faith in every sphere of life. It wasn't just something that they came and they received, but they learned how to be active disciples, giving back to the community, serving those who were in need, reaching out to those in the community around them. And with these five things, they were always present in the lives of these disciples. But if we go back to what I said at the very beginning about resilience, we'll remember that ultimately all these practices are undergirded by two things. Resilient disciples are marked by rooted flexibility, not by their rigidity. These two things, rooted flexibility. They can be grounded, they can be flexible. And if you think about the idea of resilience for just a minute, I want, I want you to think. In fact, we've got a little video I want to show you in just a minute, but I want you to think about skyscrapers for just a minute. Any of you ever been into the Willis Tower or the Sears Tower? It was, it was once called. Anybody in? Are we not? You guys need to get up to Chicago. You've been up there. All right, good deal. We've got a few. Been into these skyscrapers. Seismologists tell us that skyscrapers are some of the safest places to be in the midst of an earthquake. You believe it? Very top of a skyscraper, in fact. One of the safest places to be in the world in the middle of an earthquake, is a skyscraper. Skyscrapers are built to withstand hurricane-force winds. You can have 100 miles coming at it, 100 mile an hour wind coming at it, and the skyscraper can still stand because these are some of the most resilient structures on the planet. But they are not resilient because they are made of brick and steel, of stone and steel. They're resilient because they're rooted and they're flexible, right? At the very top of the tallest skyscraper in the world over in Dubai, they say that at any given time, and you've got sandstorms all around in that environment, that skyscraper could be leaning three meters one way or another. You believe that? Three meters at the top that you would be swaying at the very top of the skyscraper because of the winds that are there. And it's built with that in mind. In fact, the video that I want to show you, you can find a lot of these, but we have it here. I just want you to listen. You can watch, but I just want you to listen to what it's like to stand at the top of one of these during the middle of a windstorm. You may have to turn it up a little bit, Daniel.
can hear the cracking of the building as it sways right to left. And this is normal. This is exactly how it's intended to be. In fact, if it wasn't this way, then it could crack and come tumbling to the ground. But in the context of resilience, resilience does not mean that you are completely sturdy. (laughs) The sound of the sway, whatever that is. (laughs) Resilience doesn't mean that you are rock solid. Resilience, by its very nature, in fact, the Latin root for it, means that there's some level of flexibility. It means it bounces back. And in our lives, to develop resilient discipleship, we have to have that ability to both be rooted, which a building of that size has an enormous foundation, but we also have to be flexible. We have to discover how to bend with the winds of society. And the truth is for us this morning, there is a great wind that is blowing all around us. There's a wind of social change and transformation that is everywhere around us, reshaping how we think, what we think, how we live, how we communicate, how we interact with, other, with each other. And as it blows, I know this already, there are some who will be blown away as the winds come, and there are some who will break. And there are some who will blow away because they don't have that strong foundation, right? The strong foundation that these skyscrapers need, they, they just don't have it. They're not prepared. They don't have the, the idea of an intimate relationship with Jesus, or they don't have faithful relationships, or they, they don't have a mission focus, or they just don't practice in regular spiritual disciplines like reading and prayer and those things. And as the winds of society come, the tension there and the temptation in that space right there is that they'll be blown away as the, as the winds come. They don't have that strong foundation. Or there are others on the other end of the spectrum who are too rigid. And as the winds come, they'll break underneath all of the wind that's there. Not because they don't have a strong foundation, but because they're too rigid in their faith. And when the wind blows, it just seems like God is gone. God's not around anymore because I can't see God the way I used to see God. Or I can't find God in the local synagogue. All I see are these temples that are all over the place and all these unbelievable, strange new gods that are out there. And what God might be asking in those spaces, for those who are tempted to break under the weight of the wind, look for where God has shown up now. Look at where God is showing up now in our world. God never left us. God never forsakes us. But in these environments, these are the two temptations that lie before us. But if we're going to be resilient disciples, and the truth is, is you and I have to discover how to have both deep roots and flexible backs. Deep roots that go deep in our discipleship, that hold fast the central truths of our faith that God loves us cares for us and sent his only son for us and flexible backs they can see what's happening in society and bend with that and carry the gospel even into those worlds but for both of those to happen we also need bended knees we need to come back into a space in our life in your life in my life wherever we are where we get down on our knees and we seek God once more. God, where are the areas of my life where I'm lacking? Where am I not in intimacy with you? Where am I not in, in, in seeing the world around me as a grand place where you're at work? Where am I not on mission with you? Where, where am I falling short? God, bring me back to a place where I can be a resilient disciple. And as we close today, Justin's just going to sing for just a very short minute. I want us to start in that place of bended knees today.
Now, you can physically get on bended knees. You can come to the altar if you want to to get on bended knees. That's fine. If you're at home, you might want to circle up with your family or friends, or, or you might want to get on your knees. But I want us to enter this place because over the next few weeks, I'm going to encourage us to think about each of these practices and where we fall on the spectrum of these practices. Are we in alignment, in alignment with what it means to be a resilient disciple or not? But the only way that you can know that for sure, for certainty, or with all certainty, is when God's Spirit speaks to your heart. And that comes through prayer. So as we sing this closing song, I invite you into that space. I invite us into that space where we can once again find intimacy with our Savior. Would you stand with me? Gracious God, this morning we come before you and we need you to speak to our hearts. We don't need to speak a lot of words in this space. We just need to open our ears and listen. God, I know you've all called us into this season of shifting sands. This new world that's around us. God, in this new world, I ask that you'd give us the strength to be resilient disciples that will walk through it. And not only walk through it alone, but also walk through and bring others along with us. And so over the next few minutes, as we offer our prayers to you, God, I ask that you will speak to us. Open our minds and our hearts to hear where it is you're calling us to grow, to grow deeper and to grow more flexible in our faith. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.